Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Hello, this is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, and I'm back from my uh, week's holiday, which I literally spent shoveling gravel, because that's the only thing you can do on your holidays these days. Thanks to Luke Jones for holding the fort last week, Uh, but we're back with a cracking show on Times Radio today. If you want to listen back to all of it, you can on the Times Radio app, including Alan Titchmarsh telling us what he would do if he ruled the world, genuinely. Uh, Coming up on the podcast, though, a really interesting conversation about the Olympics. It's exactly a year to go until uh, the Beijing Winter Olympics closing ceremony should be being held. But should British athletes be there? Growing calls for a boycott because of the treatment of the Uyghur Muslims. We speak to some of those who think that Britain shouldn't take part. We also hear from Sharon Davis, the Olympic swimmer, on taking part in the 1980 Moscow Olympics when the British government had told athletes to stay away. But first, it's our columnist panel. It's Monday, so it must be Liberace, it's Libby Purvis and Rachel Sylvester. Now then, let's talk about the thing that I keep being told that no one is talking about. Uh, and uh, even when I was on me holidays last week, I kept getting people tweeting me saying, why aren't you talking about Matt Hancock breaking the law? And I'd replied saying, because I'm on my holidays. But let's talk now, uh, just to satisfy these people, Matt Hancock and breaking the law. On Friday, a High Court judge said the Health Secretary had failed to publish redacted contracts in accordance with the transparency policy, uh, triggering opposition calls for more accountability. By law, the government's required to publish a contract award notice within 30 days of a deal being agreed for goods or services worth more than £120,000. Does it matter, Libby, that uh, Matt Hancock has been found to have broken the the law on publishing the details of contracts that, frankly, he was trying to rush out the door to buy up PPE and whatever else it was last summer? Well, two thoughts on this. One is that it was all such a shambles at the time. I mean, there was this great desperation because um, British supplies of PPE had been run down, I believe, by 30% in the years before in all the usual sort of austerity cheese pairing regimes that we have suffered through. Uh, But the other thought I have is that I'm really pleased that it's been brought up. It may well be forgivable, but uh, the Good Law Project is a crowdfunded and not-for-profit outfit which makes legal challenges and I think it's very good that it does. I mean, I think this this kind of careful citizen nitpicking is a very valuable thing. So, you see, I'm kind of on both sides of this. I sort of feel <laughs> I don't mind if it all gets swept back under the carpet. But on the other hand, I'm glad that it's been dragged out and looked at. 
I mean, that's the thing, isn't it, Rachel? It is possible with, with actually with most political issues, I find, to sort of take the view, yes, this is important, but no, it's not the most important thing happening in the world right now. Um, uh, but unless you, you, you know, with so many things, you're supposed to take an extreme view and lots of people seem to want Matt Hancock banged up in prison. Well, I know I agree with you, actually. I think, of course, it matters and the law matters, the processes matter, particularly with government at a time of crisis. Think back to all the SOFA government with Tony Blair during the Iraq war. There's a reason why processes are put in place to make sure that decisions are taken properly. And so it does matter. But on the other hand, you know, on the one hand and on the other, there are... um, I think, you know, compare the way Matt Hancock has handled the pandemic overall and the vaccine rollout with the way Gavin Williamson has handled the schools <laughs> during the pandemic. And I I would say, you know, weighing the contractual problems, which are, I'm not diminishing, but you weigh that against the successful rollout of the vaccine. Um, and I think the rollout of the vaccine kind of outweighs it in the balance of sort of justice or you know um significance i don't know what you think libby but there is a sense that actually i think hancock overall has done a pretty good job during the pandemic obviously he's made some mistakes track and trace all kinds of everyone's made some mistakes but he got Mm. those nightingale hospitals built he's got the vaccine rolled out the nhs hasn't been overwhelmed and those are all good things in the balance of the scales of justice there's a broader issue here, isn't there, Libby, about uh, transparency and openness in, in government. And actually far more worrying for me is the, the way the government seems to be really dragging its heel, uh, heels on releasing mm. things under the Freedom of Information Act. Was it last week or the week before? Lots of editors, including the editor of The Times, signed an open letter calling on the government to, to basically stop mucking about with the freedom of information laws, which is when anyone can put a request into government. And if it's you know, it doesn't fall under certain exemptions. They have to release that data. And there's, it sort of all speaks to this sort of slight sense of, of trying to cover things up a bit. Yes, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I'm all for the Freedom of Information Act. I mean, I know T- Tony Blair kind of rolled his eyes later, didn't he, and said, worst thing he'd ever done. <laughs> Why did I go and do this? But no, I think I think it's good. And I think I think the editors are right to you know keep on pressing and sort of say, look, actually, you know, this mm. this does matter. We need to know what's going on. It is actually our money. It is actually our country. Uh, so um, uh, the, I, I'm glad I'm glad the editors are making this thing right. I don't think it's a deliberate attempt to cover everything up on government's behalf. I think they're just scrambling and scrabbling. I just have a great sense of that all all year. You know, that these, these are people scrambling to keep up with themselves. I suppose that's the thing, isn't it, Rachel? That it's not. I mean, people get very cross uh, about the. Um, the, the, this court case and the delay in publishing the details of contracts. Actually, the the unforgivable thing was that we didn't have proper PPE or proper, you, you know, purchasing systems in place before. It's not the you know failing to co- publish the contract afterwards. You know, it's the it's the hospital staff were going exactly. into a situation without the protection yeah. they deserved. Yeah, exactly. Um, and that, that 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 as you said, as Libby said, that, that over years of austerity, they're stocks of PPE had been worn down and there weren't there just wasn't enough of the stuff um but I think there is a you know Dominic Cummings when he was in Downing Street talked about you know transparency was going to be the great liberator of government forcing the civil service to do the right thing and that is important there is a sort of sunlight is the great disinfectant 
and all of that. But in practice, I think governments like to drag their feet on all of these things because anything that comes out is always tends to cause embarrassment to someone, doesn't it? But I think with the PPE thing, it's just a question of perspective. So who's really to blame? Where does the blame really lie? Obviously, contracts are incredibly important, but where sort of where's the bigger picture and all of it? Yeah, interestingly, Andrew's just uh, messaged in saying, I can't believe it's Matt Hankel's personal responsibility to publish contracts. There'll be an entire department responsible, uh, including civil servants. Why are they not being discussed? I suppose that is slightly the well, point, that, isn't it? It's and also, I think that Matt other... Hancock was a bit busy. Yeah, and there were other contracts. For example, there was, there's been controversy about one done by the Cabinet Office for focus groups and things like that with a uh, friend of um, Dominic Cummings. So, there, you know, it's been across government. I, I think it's wrong to point the finger just at one minister on this. OK, well, if, uh, if people have been cross over the past few days about Matt Hancock, they've been really, really cross about Harry and Meghan. Uh, one way or the other, again, people seem to feel the need to have very strong views um, either way. Uh, Libby, you've addressed this idea of of um, service being universal in your column today. Yes, I, I just thought it was it was very interesting that that was the angry trigger word, because there clearly was a bit of anger in the uh, in, in the riposte from from Harry and Meghan saying, you know, service is universal, because actually there's something rather peculiar and different about royal service. And I just wanted to, to, to point out two things. One was that everybody has a need to feel useful. It's one of the reasons journalists worry so much and go off and do charitable things because we think we might be, we fear we might be useless to the public. <laughs> um, it, it is. It's a, it's a, it's a, people worry about this, um, and actors worry about it terribly. You can get them to do any charitable work because we want to be of service. But the point is that what Harry does not quite get, and the Queen, of course, does after seventy years of doing it knows that royal service is really peculiar. It's a big ask. You have to be apolitical. You have to be without opinion. You are benign. You represent the nation and no point of view, no politics. And you just are there to throw in these patronages and visits and so on, a sort of Ruritanian ceremonial luster over the really boring workaday good works of ordinary people. If you go to an investiture, you will see the odd celebrity, you know, oh, the hell with that. But you'll see people who've fostered children for 40 years or worked for their local community, midwives, long-serving post office workers and charity workers. And there they are in a palace with a band playing in the background and the Queen giving them a medal. And these things matter. But the people who do them have to be standing apart. They can't be having opinions like Harry and Meghan, you know, and sort of announcing what we should do about the environment and what we should do about this, that and the other and how we should all be raindrops. You know, it's a very different kind of service. It's just two, it's just two different kinds of thing. And be careful about this because, honestly, under the line, there's a lot of people mm. yowling and howling about how the Times goes on about nothing but the royal family and we shouldn't even mention them. So watch yourself, Matt. Well, I'm used to people shouting at me below the line. Um, uh, <laughs> um, uh, Rachel, the part, part of the thing about being in the royal family, it's like you, you can't be a little bit pregnant and you can't be a little bit in the royal family. Either your job is going around, you know, raising the profile of things, attending slightly dull, you know, events, pulling strings on curtains that unveil small plaques and all that sort of thing, but doing your, your duty, not all of it terribly exciting, but, you know, much appreciated by the people at the time. Um, and with that also comes then the platform and the, you know, the, the tooting trumpets when you walk into rooms and all that sort of thing. But if you're not going to do one bit, you can't have the other bit, can you, potentially? They just become two yeah. s- sort of glamorous celebrities. 
yeah, the privilege sort of comes with duty and responsibility, as Libby says. And I sort of, again, I feel slightly torn on this one because on the one hand, I look at those pictures of Harry as a little boy on the day of his mother's funeral. And you just think, poor kid, you know, what's he been through? He's been through so much and he's got that sort of, you know, enthusiasm and, and in a way an emotional intelligence. But I think what's really interesting about them is they've swapped one privileged elite bubble for another. So they've <laughs> they've swapped the sort of royal family for celebrity and Hollywood. And, you know, they've given up the Queen, but they're going on the Queen of daytime TV, Oprah Winfrey's sofa. And they're, you know, they've, they've not got the, instead of the sort of military um, parades and the balcony waving and all of that, they've got yoga and smoothies and things. But it, again, it's a sort of privileged bubble. Um, and I think the difference between those two bubbles is that, it, you know, at its best, the royal family is about service to other people. And at its worst, celebrity is about service to yourself, basically. And it's slightly narcissistic. And they've gone from one to the other. In, in a way that's um, is in a way quite distasteful to a lot of people, I think. Yeah, if they wanted to, you know, if they wanted to reconnect with people, they could have done. Well, the government's moving the the Ministry for Housing to Wolverhampton. Maybe, maybe yeah. uh, Harry and Meghan should have moved <laughs> to Wolverhampton as well. Um, they've they've got a palace, haven't they? Where they yeah, are, they're in. But there's there's a great there's a great sadness about I mean they did hit a bit of hideous bad luck in that the COVID thing happened just as they had crossed the Atlantic and I really do think that in a different time Harry might have been whipping to and fro across the Atlantic and sort of joshing with Captain Tom and you know helping with the Nightingales I think they've their isolation has been sort of underlined by the COVID year and I I, I really feel for poor old Harry and loss of all his military links and that group of friendships. Mm-hmm. Uh, and possibly actually popping in to see his gran uh, and actually a, a sort of face-to-face chat over a cup of tea might have been um, uh, might have possibly smoothed things slightly better than everything being done <laughs> zoom <course>. makes everything worse <laughs> zoom makes everything worse don't we i'll get that get that on a mug <laughs> um, just finally um, there's an inter- really interesting story in the times today that um the Home Secretary Priti Patel might replace the Met Commissioner Cressida Dick with someone more hardline, and they sort of pick over uh, the possibility of this. It was a very strange thing the other day where um, uh, Cressida Dick wouldn't say that, that she'd got faith in Priti Patel. Priti Patel wouldn't say that she'd got full confidence in Cressida Dick. Does this matter, uh, uh, Libby? Should we worry about yes. who's in charge of the Met Police? Yeah, Cressida Dick is great. I am a huge fan of Cressida Dick. I've read and and thought a lot about her and and I, you know, talk to people who've worked with her. I think she's absolutely tremendous. I just want these two sort of basically sensible, tough-minded women to sit down at a table together, suitably distanced, and just thrash out whatever it is that divides them. Because I don't think that a more sort of consciously hard line, sort of super-duper, you know, zap them all... Uh, Chief Constable is what the Met needs at all. I think Cressida Dick is absolutely perfect, hugely trusted by police. She's done some very good things. She has a very measured approach to things like the big demonstrations. And I, I I just want them to talk about this. They're both, I think basically okay well-meaning women and um Cressida Dick slightly cleverer than Pretty Patel but let's let's just let's not stir this one up I really don't want some kind of uh, super robocop figure to be parachuted in and ruin the good work that the Met has really been trying to do 
Yeah, I mean, uh, the, the Home Office is at great pains to point out that they uh, speak regularly. Uh, the Home Office number 10 denying reports that Christa Dick is on the way out. Do you think part of the problem is they are quite similar, Rachel? That, you know, they, no. They, <laughs> they, no. Um, no. I agree with Libby totally about Cressida Dick, having interviewed her, actually. She's so impressive. She's so down-to-earth, straightforward, honest, um, wise, sensible. It's tough on the crime, tough on the causes of crime. She talked a lot about um, the importance of parenting and dealing with knife crime. And, you know, it's not just about locking them up or stop and search. It's about what's the real causes of knife crime when, when I interviewed her. And I think Pretty Patel isn't of that vein. She's much more of the lock them up and throw away the key, much more knee-jerk, um, bash them over the head, populism, um, at least to try and curry favour with the Tory right. Um, so I think, unfortunately, they're not as sensible as each other. Um, Cressida Dick is much more sensible than Pretty Patel, and I'd much rather see Pretty Patel replaced. And in fact, that may be more likely, I'd suggest, than Cressida Dick being replaced. <laughs> yeah, yeah, lots of reports over the weekend of a looming reshuffle and all of the bizarre shenanigans involving people that no normal person ever heard of uh, in and out of jobs in number 10 and the, the possibility that Michael Gove could end up at the at the Home Office come that reshuffle whenever that might happen. Well, I think we've, luckily, we've managed to sort out everything there. Matt Hancock, Harry and <laughs> Meghan, Cressida Dick. The world is, is sorted. Libby Purvis and Rachel Sylvester there. And don't forget, of course, you can read them both in The Times every week. You just need to get yourself a Times subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next that discussion on whether or not Britain should boycott the Winter Olympics. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. Uh, today, Britain is stepping up its criticism of China's treatment of Uyghur Muslims, with Dominic Raab using a speech of the United Nations to say the situation in Xinjiang is beyond the pale. The Foreign Secretary will warn that the abuses, which include torture, forced labour and forced sterilisation of women, are extreme and extensive, and he'll demand the UN must be given urgent and unfettered access to Xinjiang for a fact-finding mission. It comes after Boris Johnson used a major speech on foreign policy on Friday to suggest that one of the benefits of leaving the EU was Britain was able to take an independent stance on human rights. For the first time in nearly 50 years, we now have the power to impose independent national sanctions, allowing the UK to act swiftly and robustly. We have consistently spoken out against China's repression of the Uyghur people in Xinjiang province and will continue to do so. We've introduced new measures to ensure that the supply chains of UK companies are not tainted by the violations in Xinjiang. But what about the Olympics being tainted Two, exactly a year today will be the closing ceremony of the Winter Olympics in Beijing. But should Team GB be there? There are growing calls for us to boycott the Games in protest of the treatment of the Uyghur Muslims. Now, politics and sport are rarely easy bedfellows. While the soft power of sport cannot be underestimated, 
Athletes who spent years training to reach the top of their discipline loathe the idea of being used as pawns in geopolitical diplomacy. In a moment, we'll hear from the Olympic swimmer Sharon Davis on what it was like to go to the 1980 Moscow Olympics in defiance of the UK government over the uh, Russia's invasion of Afghanistan. But first, let's focus on the China issue specifically. When a group of MPs, including Lib Dem leader Sir Ed Davin, Labour former Minister Chris Bryant, called for a boycott recently... The editor of China's state-run Global Times newspaper responded by saying that countries who boycotted the Games could face consequences. Well, this is a row that's been growing for some time, and the official line from the UK government is that nothing is walled out. As I mentioned, Dominic Raab is going to be making a speech later, but this was him being quizzed on this specific issue of boycotting the Olympic Games last year. Generally speaking, my instinct is to separate uh, sport from uh, diplomacy and politics, but there comes a point where that may not be possible. I would say let's gather the evidence, let's work with our international partners, let's consider in the round what further action we need to take. Can I just come straight off the back of that? His Royal yeah. Highness the Duke of Cambridge very often attends international sporting events on behalf of Her Majesty's Government. Will you be encouraging him to attend? Look, I will, as I said, that will be a corollary of the wider process of evaluating the evidence and working with our international partners and in whatever further decisions we come to. Well, just to be clear, it's not his choice. It'd be, he would only attend on behalf of the government, so it would be your choice and the Prime Minister's. Well, then we'll obviously want to look at that very closely and carefully. So that was Dominic Raab back in October being asked by MPs on the Foreign Affairs uh, Select Committee about the prospect of a boycott, in particular uh, being pressed by the Conservative MP and Chairman of the Foreign Affairs Committee, Tom Tugendhat, who joins me now. Hi, Tom. Hi, how are you, Matt? I'm very good. I'm very good. So, so looking on what are we now, sort of four or five months on from there, where are we, do you think, in the uh, decision about whether or not Britain should take part in the uh, Olympics in Beijing next year? Well, I've heard nothing to suggest that um, the actions that Beijing are, change, is taking, are making it more likely, in fact, more or less likely. Uh, when you see the reports on the BBC, for example, um, uh, about what's going on in Xinjiang or the reports from ASPE, the Australian Strategic Policy Institute uh, that we've seen and, and, and the accounts that we've heard now uh, quite frequently from Uyghur activists like um, uh, those who've appeared before the Foreign Affairs Committee. You know, it seems, it seems very difficult to believe that a country that has not only been described as genocidal by them, but now also by the United States, not just the Trump administration, but also the Biden administration, will be a suitable place for um, proper representation at the at the Olympics. Obviously, it's it's difficult for athletes who spent a long time uh, preparing and training for you know they're they're not politicians they're they're sportsmen and women who who just want to take part in their uh, competitions. Is there any prospect of maybe a repeat of what happened in 1980, where you know some athletes do go but they they don't compete under the union flag, or what? What? How do you actually see this panning out? Well, look, I think I mean I think there's a gradation of things. The first is, of course, ministers don't go, the royal family doesn't go, then perhaps you know sponsorship is withdrawn, and eventually perhaps uh, athletes don't go. But it, but it, you know I wouldn't I wouldn't say you go immediately to the last option. You I think you you grade these things. But let's not pretend that these events aren't political. I mean, the 1936 Olympics in Berlin were political. The 1980 Olympics in Moscow were political. You know, even our 2012 Olympics in London were political. They were they were there designed to launch, to mark the relaunch of the United Kingdom in many ways onto the international, uh, you know, in, in, in the international world. And so they, they were political. And this one in, in Beijing will be political as well. So, you know, let's not 
let's not pretend that this is just a sporting event. It's not. It's a political event designed to showcase a government, a country and a regime. Does there need to be a sort of more of a, a moral judgment by the organising bodies that, that countries who have been widely criticised on the global stage aren't sort of rewarded with these big, you know, these big ticket events? Well, I mean, you, you don't need me to go through the history of corruption that has tarnished the World Cup and other major sporting events uh, in recent years. I hope that's being cleaned up. But, you know, the reports that we've, we've seen over, over the last few years have been, frankly, pretty worrying. And yes, I think that, you know, in international governing bodies need to realise that they have a, an obligation to host uh, insensible countries. And one of the ways that you remind them of that obligation is that if they don't, uh, you know, if they decide to choose dictatorships that uh, violate human rights to the degree that we're seeing around the world in, in countries like China, uh, then others don't appear and they don't get the advertising revenue. And so they're, they're hitting their pockets. I think that needs to be, you know, that needs to be a factor. But of course, if, if there's corruption as well, then the decision can be divorced from the reality. Is this something that might come back to the House of Commons? I mean, I know there's been this big debate about Britain recognising what's going on in China is genocide. What, what's the sort of next process for MPs like you have these concerns? Well, I mean, I think I'm, I'm pretty sure it's going to come back to the House of Commons. I mean, whether it comes back through uh, DCMS questions or Foreign Office questions or directly to the Prime Minister, I don't know. But I'm absolutely certain that questions to the Prime Minister, uh, sorry, questions to the government about you know, Britain's attendance are going, to, are going to only grow. And I'm sure that questions to you know, President Macron and Chancellor Merkel will also grow. So uh, I, I'm, I, I wait to see what President Biden says about it too. Um, but exactly where this goes, I think, depends a lot on not just uh, what we do, but also, of course, what the Chinese uh, Communist Party does. Just finally, it's a year to go today until the uh, closing ceremony of the Olympics in Beijing. What's your hunch? Will there be British athletes there? My hunch is that there probably will be, but but I think it's you know I, I suspect that there won't be government representation. I mean, you know, I'm I'm calling into the void a bit here, so you know I'm almost certainly going to be wrong. Um, but the uh, the reality is that um, people are very reticent, quite understandably, uh, to call uh, to call off these events. Uh, as you rightly say, athletes have prepared quite literally for, for years. Very often, this is the high point of their entire career. And, and people are very, very reticent to, to prevent them competing. Uh, but we have got to realise that if, you know, unlike the Disney movie that was filmed in Xinjiang, uh, quite literally over the graves of people in, uh, who've been um, murdered by the regime, uh, you know, we need, to, we need to remember that we are, uh, you know, we're engaging with a state that is particularly brutal. There's Tom Tugendhat there, the Conservative MP and Chairman of the Foreign Affairs Select Committee in the House of Commons. Uh, let's uh, hear from someone else who thinks that, that maybe uh, Team GB shouldn't attend the Winter Olympics in Beijing uh, next year. Hassan Judy is the Deputy Secretary General of the Muslim Council of Britain and joins me now. Hi, Hassan. Uh, we heard the, the clip there before, Dominic Raab uh, saying uh, that there comes a point where it's not possible to separate sport from diplomacy. Have we reached that point now? starting off with that clip from Dominic Raab as well. Uh, and I think that point is now, fortunately. It's hard to imagine what more is required to meet the Foreign Secretary's threshold over and above mass internment, compulsory sterilization, forced labor camps. I mean, what more do we need to take strong action? For people, if they haven't been sort of following uh, you know, the developments on this, just describe what... what is known or suspected to be happening uh, to the Uyghur Muslims in, in Xinjiang? 
well, Tom, there's been for many years now, uh, since at least 2015-16, growing evidence of the terrible crimes being taking pla- uh, taking place against Uyghur Muslims in China. Between 2017 and 2019, an estimated 80,000 Uyghur Muslims were transferred from detention camps to factories across China uh, in forced labor, making all sorts of products for export to consumers, such as here in the UK. The End Uyghur Forced Labor Coalition estimates that one in five cotton garments in circulation in the global market is tainted with forced labor. Um, and too many reports, sadly, to, to go through regarding mass sterilization of uh, Uyghur women in these detention camps, which is clearly part of a coordinated campaign. Some of your listeners might be, or they might remember the terrible drone footage of bound and blindfolded men building trains uh, that we saw spread across social media on July 2020. And Andrew Ma um, in BBC on that Sunday challenged the Chinese ambassador to the UK to give an explanation for what these images are. Uh, and today we have received no plausible or acceptable explanation. I mentioned that Dominic Raab is making a speech today when he's expected to step up uh, sort of public criticism of uh, the Chinese regime. But do you think this has been matched by action? What action would you like them to to see? Because, you know, it does seem as if it's now quite routine with this Boris Johnson or Dominic Raab to to publicly criticise China, but not to necessarily follow up with action. What sort of action would you like to see? Sure, of course, words are important. Uh, but also actions are. And so far, um, as the UK, our actions have not matched our words. I think we have to look at a wide range of options that we have available to us, uh, both from the economic point of view, from businesses and uh, deterrence point of view, and uh, as many have proactively taken, such as the Better Cotton Initiative, suspending their licensing activities um, of production facilities in Western China, but also the Olympic Games in exactly 12 months from today um, is another option that we need to seriously consider because we have to remember that China is a global power and their international prestige and their international reputation is very important to them. And they, as we know, used the 2008 Summer Olympics hosted in Beijing to raise their profile from a political point of view and their international image on the global stage. And we have to remember that these Winter Olympics next February 2022, also taking place in Beijing, will make actually Beijing the first city in the world to host both the Summer and Winter Olympics giving yeah, China an unprecedented level of international prestige. So surely yeah, if we do yeah. not use this opportunity to call for boycotts, unless there's a commitment for an independent investigation into these accusations of genocide, do we really want to be, be there while this is all happening? Or should we be exercising our moral conscience?
Hassan, it's really good to speak to you. Hassan Judy there is the Deputy Secretary General of the Muslim Council of Britain. We should say we've got a statement from Team GB saying that they don't believe that boycotting the Olympic Winter Games is the right solution and feel that the athletes who have trained all their lives at this moment should be able to go and compete and represent their country. The statement goes on, as we saw in Moscow in 1980, sporting boycotts don't work. They penalise the athletes while leaving the greater political problems unaddressed or unsolved. We're going to speak to one of the athletes who went to the 1980 Olympics in Moscow despite the calls for a boycott. We'll speak to Sharon Davis next here on Times Radio. Across the UK, on DAB, online and on your smart speaker, Matt Chorley on Times Radio. Yeah, we're talking about this idea of boycotting the Beijing Winter Olympics this time next year. We've heard from the political side, but what about the athletes? Uh, The most significant Olympic boycott to date came in 1980 when 66 countries, led by the United States, refused to attend the Summer Olympics in Moscow in protest of the Soviet Union invasion of Afghanistan. At the time, Margaret Thatcher warned that the Moscow Games would be used for propaganda purposes, likening them to the 1936 Games hosted by Hitler's Nazi Germany. Margaret Thatcher said athletes are not just... Uh, said, sorry, she said that athletes are just like any other kind of citizens. They have the same rights and responsibilities towards freedom and its maintenance as every citizen in the United Kingdom. With the exception of equestrian, hockey, sailing and shooting teams, most athletes in the British squad defied intense political pressure and did attend the 1980 Games. But when a British athlete won a gold medal, it was not God Save the Queen that was played, but this... Yeah, this is the Olympic hymn which played when Alan Wells, Steve Yvette, Seb Coe, Daley Thompson and Duncan Goodhue received their gold medals. And for all GB medal winners, 21 in all, it was the Olympic flag and not the Union Jack that was raised. Well, one of those medal winners, swimmer Sharon Davis, who won silver in the women's 400 metres individual medley, joins me now. Hi, Sharon. Good afternoon. Well, morning, isn't oh, it's it? Only, still morning. It's only morning. It's only wish the day away. I know it feels Sorry. like the days are tracking right now. <laughs> it's all uh, running we, into one a bit at the moment. It's all <laughs> exactly right. It's, uh, we've also got Times Chief Sports Correspondent Matt Lawton, who was at the Russian uh, medal, uh, Men's Football World Cup in 2018. Hi, Matt. Hi, Matt. How are you doing? Uh, yeah, it, it, by coincidence, both of these are around, uh, you know, uh, the issues of sports going to, to Russia in particular. But Sharon, just describe what it was like ha- back in 1980. How much pressure were you under not to go to the Olympic Games? Yeah, difficult. A great deal of pressure. I mean, I can sort of empathise with our athletes that have obviously had a delayed Olympic Games this time round as well. You know, with, with not a certainty, even now, that the Summer Olympic Games will happen. So training every day, getting up at five o'clock in the morning um, to carry on and try to be the best prepared you possibly can to win a medal and represent your country for something that you've been working for in some cases for 10 years of your life and not knowing whether it will actually happen is really difficult. And also, you know, not feeling like you're you're a political person. Um, The difficulty with... Russia way back in 1980 was that the government was suggesting that the the athletes should not go to the Olympic Games. But meantime, they were still trading with Russia. Um, The irony of the situation was, of course, that the Russians were in Afghanistan in 1980 and the Americans had a problem with it. And only a few few years later, the Americans and the Brits were in Afghanistan. So, you know, there is an awful lot of hypocrisy that goes on with politics. Uh, Your previous politician was talking about the fact that, you know, the Olympics is not is, is a political 
event. Well, we try very hard to make it not political, to have something that brings the world together. Having said that, I believe that the G20 conference is in Saudi Arabia coming up very soon, and that's a very much a political organisation, and they've chosen to be in Saudi Arabia. So there's a tremendous amount of hypocrisies that goes on. I don't believe that boycotts work, and they certainly didn't work in Moscow. It was, you know, difficult games to be there. But having said that, by being there, we actually had more of a voice for the Russian people than not being there. And I believe things like the Olympics actually put a put a spotlight on countries like China, and that's a good thing, because then they can't hide their human rights histories. They can't hide the atrocities that they are doing, you know, and hopefully that pressure can be put on them to make change. What was it like for you uh, when you, you win your silver medal, but then at the, the, the medal ceremony, it's the, it's the Olympic flag that, that was raised as part of the sort of trying to distance Team GB from, from you know, the, polit- the political side of it? What was that like, seeing the Olympic flag rather than the Union Jack? Um, it was really sad. I mean, it, it, you know, obviously, having put an awful lot of work into it and being very nationalistic, I was really excited about standing underneath, you know, a Union Jack flag. But I was very glad to be there. Um, there were other people that didn't have that right taken away from the Americans had their passports removed, supposedly free society. So I felt like it was fantastic that we were able to actually, you know, be there. It was a very small team. There was 150 of us. The Olympic team in 2012 was 550 athletes, so small contingency. We arrived late into the village and we left the moment we finished competing. So we didn't get to stay around and support anybody. So it was um, quite grey in lots of ways, but I'm always very grateful that actually we actually you know did get to, get to take part. And then of course we had boycotts in '76 because of the apartheid, and then we had sort of retaliation boycotts in '84 because the Eastern Bloc wanted to punish America in LA. So the whole thing went on for years. You know what we're trying to do with the Olympics is to bring the world together in something that's very positive, rather than be using it as a political tool. Yeah, so as I mentioned, so there you, you were in uh, Moscow in nineteen eighty at the centre of boycott calls, and then Matt Lawson, you were in uh, Moscow in twenty eighteen when the the men's oh. world football World Cup was all um, uh, caught up in this as well. Remind people why there were calls to boycott that World Cup. Well, again, sort of human rights issues and and, and other other problems, but, but I think I think the point that everyone's missing here, Matt, is really Sharon's right. The the, the, the athletes shouldn't be penalised and. Seb Cotel's a story about Geoffrey Howe, a young minister at the time, sort of putting pressure on his father, who was his coach, Peter Cote, to get Seb to pipe down a bit because Seb was so vocal in, in, in saying that he wanted to run in the Olympics. But I think the issue here really is, is, is that there are no scruples when it comes to the, the governing bodies, the IOC, FIFA, in choosing these countries. There are no scruples when we see big boxing fights being, you know, being, being held in Saudi Arabia. Um, I was in, you know, the Duke of Cambridge was mentioned earlier. I was in the Bar Olac Hotel in December 2010, and I have such a vivid recollection of the Duke of Cambridge, David Cameron at the time, the Prime Minister, and David Beckham coming down the stairs, thinking that they had seduced FIFA into England getting the 2018 World Cup. And they've particularly been courting a guy called Jack Warner, who is now, everyone knows, is completely corrupt. Um, and, and, of course, the next day they get one vote. And the one vote they got was from the, from the English bloke. And, and uh, five years later in the same hotel, FIFA guys are being dragged out of the hotel by the Swiss authorities with blankets over their heads on money laundering charges and various other corruption charges. The problem is that, you know, 
we see this, and on that day in Zurich in 2010, Qatar was given the was given the World Cup in 20 for 2022, and we have the same debates going on around that. You know, yes, we're not genocide, not quite as serious as uh, as the problem in China, but serious human rights uh, issues that are being debated. But the idea that you you penalise the athletes, I don't agree with. I, I think people like Sharon, they were right to compete in, in the Olympics in 1980. As I say, the real spotlight should be on these major governing bodies because they, they, they just don't have any moral fortitude when it comes to where they go. They go to where the money is. And the thing you've got to remember, Matt, is that few, fewer and fewer countries can afford to stage things like the Olympic Games. And, and, and you've also got to remember just how, how, how great the desire is for countries like China to extend their influence in sport. This is sport washing. We've got Chinese owners in the Premier League. We've got Chinese sponsors all over the shirts of Premier League teams. You know, th- th- this is not just about the Olympics. This is everywhere. And, and the problem I, I always remember thinking that day uh, after the Americans as well, totally humiliated in 2010 in Zurich. And I thought, you know, what are people like Cameron and, and, and Obama going to do about this? But, of course, they get back to Downing Street or to Washington, or Obama didn't go to Zurich. Cameron obviously did. They get back to the office the next day, and they've got real issues to deal with on their own doorsteps. They've got, you know, I think at the time, major flooding in, in parts of the country and people being flooded out of their homes. They, they, they've got to deal with unemployment. So, 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 so the, the focus on these major governing bodies choosing these countries in the first place is forgotten. And, and that's the issue. That's where the, that's where the spotlight should be. Yeah, we wouldn't be having this debate if, 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 if China hadn't been chosen in the first place to hold these Olympics. Absolutely. Um, Sharon, are you aware of pressure being exerted on uh, you know, the current crop of athletes preparing for the, the Winter Olympics next year? Yeah, um, can I just say absolutely, that, that hits the nail on the head. You know, the, the, the buck really stops with the big federations and the fact that there's, there's pound signs and dollar signs all over this. This is not a fault of the athletes who've worked really, really hard. So to punish them is not the answer. It is to hold these people accountable. Um, yes, I mean, it's really tough for the athletes at the moment. You know, they really just want to get on with the training and with performing and to represent their coaches and themselves and their countries. And in fact, most of them probably have very, very strong views about human rights and, you know, totally and utterly disapprove. So my point would be let's use these opportunities to try and shine a light as as much as we possibly can on what is going on. Because if we don't do that, it goes on behind closed doors. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, Matt, do you expect to be um, out in... uh, I don't don't know, do you get to go to the Olympics? Will you be out in the Winter Olympics next year? I would would certainly hope to be in Tokyo. Whether I get carded to to watch the skiing, we we, we don't send as many people to the Winter Games, mainly because we don't tend to do that well. In it. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, um, so uh, yeah, we'll see. I'd like to go. Well, wouldn't we? All, to be honest, we'd like to go anywhere right now, Matt. Let's be honest. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's really good to speak to you, Matt Lawton, Times Chief Sports Correspondent, and uh, Sharon Davis, of course, uh, Olympic medal winner. Well, that's it for this episode of Red Box. Uh, if you've enjoyed it, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcast from. Maybe even leave us a rating because it helps with the mumbo-jumbo charts. We release an episode every day, Monday to Thursday, featuring the best bits of my Times Radio show. You can listen to the whole thing uh, Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. It's available on DAB online via Smart Speaker or on the Times Radio app. 
If you want to read more about all of the stories we've been discussing, then go to times.radio forward slash subscribe. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.